All right, looks like we're at time. Good morning, everyone. So we're going to be continuing on in Zephaniah today. We're going to be backtracking a little bit, uh, revisiting chapter 1, verse 7. There's some questions about that before we left for a few weeks on the break. So I did some digging around, and we'll see what Luther has to say and ultimately what the rest of Scripture has to say about that verse. And then we'll continue on, do a brief run-through just to catch us back up since we've slept, eaten cookies, eaten more cookies since then. So a little refresher to get our heads back in the game of what Zephaniah's context is, what he's speaking of, and then getting into the new material in chapter 3. Before that, we'll do an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so just as a way of refresher, um, going back to the introductory material of <clears throat> Zephaniah here. If you recall, his, he's in the context of the reign of Josiah, who was the king. Remember, he found the law kind of hidden away in the temple, in the kind of the wall or somewhere, and he digs it back out. And then there's, Josiah's going to be bringing about religious reforms during this time. But as we know, God's people don't always listen to those words. And so they're still a rebellious people, and they're not going to repent, many of them. Um, so in the context or time frame, anywhere between 640 and 609 is where they date the writing of Zephaniah. So contemporary of Jeremiah in that same time period, give or take a few years potentially. And so in that context, he's writing this. We gone through chapter 1 and 2, if you recall, in verses 2 and 3. talked about there's kind of that flood imagery of utterly sweeping away everything from the face of the earth. Same type of language used in Genesis 6 for the Lord speaking of the earth and sending the flood, sweeping away man and beast, away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. And so here even a greater destruction because presumably with the flood, you know, the fish probably survived. You know, a few of them may, get, may have gotten taken out by some trees or something, but here even a greater destruction that he's speaking of. And then getting into verse 7, there are some kind of questions. I'll just reread the verse. It says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. So it seems kind of like an odd, some odd imagery there. I think that's kind of where the questions stemmed from, of the Lord preparing a sacrifice. You know, who's the sacrifice and who's the consecrated guest? And throughout all the commentaries I've read, even through Luther, he takes it clearly as the sacrifice is God's people, Israel. They're the, they are the sacrifice that's prepared and then the consecrated guests, he says, He will get the Chaldeans ready to be prepared to devour the sacrifice to destroy and ruin you. You see, the Lord has called them as his guests at that banquet of his, 
So the prophet is alluding to the ritual of sacrifice. When sacrifices used to be made, then those who were going to eat of the sacrifice were cleansed. Were cleansed. Thus, here he is saying the same thing, and thereby he announces a captivity and destruction of the people, that the Lord had summoned the Chaldeans to be his guests who would eat that sacrifice of his. So that's what Luther has to say about it. And the other commentators agree by and large with that, that God's people are the prepared sacrifice and the guests are, his, are the wicked nations that he's going to use as the instruments there to devour the sacrifice. Again, sending the Babylonians in for the Babylonian captivity and so forth. But to, if Luther isn't convincing enough for the other commentators, one look at Isaiah 25 real quick, and then we'll see how that same imagery of a sacrifice is used. So in Isaiah 25, uh, we'll just start around verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, or rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So what event do you think Isaiah is speaking of here? The mountain of the Lord preparing this, exactly, Calvary of swallowing up death forever. On what mountain is the Lord going to be swallowing up death forever, if not on Calvary? And so in verse 6, he is, you know, making for all peoples a feast of rich food. So food and well-aged wine, food and wine, body and blood. He has prepared this from the foundations of the world. He is going to prepare this sacrifice. And so ultimately, that is what we see in Zephaniah, who he is speaking of, ultimately going to be of Christ, but in the more narrow sense is going to be the people of Israel, that he has prepared them as the sacrifice, and the guests are going to be the Chaldeans who come in and utterly devour them. But ultimately, who's Israel reduced down to one? Christ himself. And so here we get a kind of a both and. Hopefully that's a satisfying answer. If there's any more questions on that. Does that kind of make sense, or is there anything lingering? No news is good news then on that front. So, all right. So then he continues on, just the, the crying will be heard from the fish gate. So this wailing kind of continues on all the way through chapter 1, the day of wrath that's coming. Then the judgment of Judah's enemies in chapter 2, the burning anger of the Lord coming upon them. And then in verse 6, we had hit upon the UOC coast shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. And so we talked about the shepherd imagery and the sheep imagery. He'll return back to that at the end of the book here. 
then continue, he's heard the taunts of Moab, and then he's going to be speaking against Assyria, that is Nineveh, kind of their synonymous here, one's a capital city. And so then in verses 13 and following, he's speaking of Assyria, the destruction of Nineveh here. He will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert, verse 13. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. So again, just kind of mocking them of, you know, your great capitals are going to be filled with these wild animals where your kings once were, there's going to be hedgehogs kind of sitting on the thrones there. A voice shall hoot in the window, devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work would be la- will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely. That said in our heart, I am, and there is no one else. So that wicked city is the one that is saying, I am, whose name is I am. Mm-hmm. So they themselves are saying in their heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a liar for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. And then Zephaniah does a great rhetorical move here. Again, we kind of lose the good punchline because we have the divided chapters and the header that kind of clues us in of who he's speaking of here in chapter 3, which is Jerusalem. But again, thinking, getting rid of all the chapter divisions, all the headers. Here he's already been speaking of Nineveh, this wicked nation. What a desolation she has become. And then without missing a beat, he continues on. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. Nineveh is quite an oppressing city, are they not? She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. You tell him, Zephaniah. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Uh-oh. Who's he speaking of now? Jerusalem. So when they were thinking that he was speaking of Nineveh, of this wicked nation, then he turns it right on their head and he points the finger right at them. He says, woe to you who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. You listen to no voice. You accept no correction. So you're so filled with pride that you don't accept any kind of correction. Does not trust in the Lord does not draw near to her God. That's why in our liturgy for the divine service setting three, let's draw near with a true heart and confess before God, you know, that language. So this drawing near. So each and every week we are drawing near to our God. But here he's saying she does not draw near to her God. And then we get four different offices that he's going to be chastising here. Her officials within her are roaring lions Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. So both the officials and the judges are just these devouring animals. They leave nothing till the morning. They devour everything that they come across. And we saw then the other minor prophets of the people of Israel oppressing the poor and all that and having these winter houses for themselves. So that same type of imagery, they're gaining wealth by oppressing the poor. 
Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. So they profane what that which is set apart, thus making it unclean. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. So the Lord is within her. Where is that at? At the temple. So he is within her, and he does no injustice. Again, but she does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God, even though he is dwelling within her midst, within her temple. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. So every morning, each and every morning, he shows forth his justice to his people. But the unjust knows no shame. They don't accept any kind of correction. And how often do we ourselves not like to accept correction when it comes to us? But here, that's what the people of Israel, they are not accepting any correction, listening to no voice, not trusting in the Lord now I'm going to be going off on a tangent here in verse 6, but before that I want to pause and see if there's any kind of questions. Clear as mud? All righty. So then he continues on and he says, I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Now, for that language of cutting off, I just had to go on. I got off on a tangent earlier, last minute prepping. I thought, or I saw the language of cutting off, and that made me think of a paper that I'd previously done of the language of cutting. And so let's back up all the way into Genesis, and we'll see this cutting language. It can be in Genesis, starting in chapter 9, and then we'll move on through Genesis a little bit. So again, starting in chapter 6, there's the sending of the flood, or the promise of the flood coming. Then 7, he's building the ark, and the flood happens. Chapter 8, the flood subsides. And then God's covenant with Noah. And then in chapter 9, in, let's see, let's go verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I will establish... Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So never again shall all flesh be cut off. Karath is the Hebrew word used there. So keep that verb in your mind of no longer, never again shall all flesh be cut off. And then move fast forward into Genesis 15. And this will be God's covenant with Abram, soon to be Abraham. And then in verse 
7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half. So again, carath, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So it's just for the sake of getting to verse 17 here. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, which is just a great image here. The smoking pot and the flaming torch passing by. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Again, the English kind of fails us there. It's cut, karath again. So he cut a covenant with Abram saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he continues on specifying which lands. But here he has cut this covenant. And so that language there of cutting the covenant, this is the only time in Genesis where Karath is used for the covenant between God and Abram here. So it's this one-time event, this one covenant that he has cut. Now, in Genesis, there's other times where he's established a covenant, or there's other words that are used, but that specific word, karath, is only used here for the covenant between God and Abram. Every other time they're speaking of that covenant, they use a different verb for that same covenant. But here, that one cutting of the covenant is made here. I think I saw a hand. Yeah. Is that because... uh or, or let's see, are we to understand that as meaning um, like literally cutting up these different um, mm-hmm. um, territories? Maybe the covenant being cut because then what follows is the different um, lands, the river of mm-hmm. Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and so on and so on. So the cutting is actually referring back into verses eight and following of the cutting of the animals in half. And so here you have the bloody carcasses on either side. And then in between is the Lord walking in the midst of them. And so you'd have that same kind of covenant process of, you know, cutting animals in half and passing through. And both people would pass through both sides of the covenant or both, both parties who are making the covenant would pass through thus kind of signifying, Hey, if we break the covenant, we're going to be like these animals here. You know, bring death upon me if I break this covenant. But here alone is the Lord 
walking in the midst of that covenant. Abram's in a deep sleep, a deep, great sleep. So he's off snoozing. He can't walk through the midst. It's the Lord alone who walks through, the Lord alone who can fulfill that covenant, apart from any work of Abram or anything. So that's what the cutting is going to be referring to, is the cutting of the covenant, the necessary spilling of blood to establish that covenant. Again, which we see then in the New Testament. Take drink. It's a cup. The new covenant that is made in his blood. So again, that's kind of a little rabbit trail. Again, we can go off on other things. But that language just popped into my head and I really wanted to talk about it a little bit. I haven't gotten to talk about it since I wrote a paper. You just turn it into a professor and they grade it and turn it back and you never get to talk about it. So I just had to use this kind of as an excuse to talk about the cutting of the covenant, just the uniqueness of that. And so we can go back to Zephaniah if there are any other questions. Can you entertain them? I saw the look on your face. I knew you, knew you were itching. No. Like this is a dog question. No, I don't. Okay, so Abraham is from Ur of the Chaldeans, and that's where Daniel is taken to Babylon and Ur, or Babylon anyway. Hmm. The Chaldeans. I'd have to do some. I does anyone else know? I don't know off the top of my head. Using the same words. Yeah, very much could. Yeah. Let me go back to here and see if. Uh, let's see. Let me see if the study notes make any kind of for the reference cross references. I mean, I'll take yeah, I'll take your word for it. I'd have to do some searching to see, but it could be kind of an interesting, yeah. Yeah, he did bring them, bring him up out of that land. So you see, it wasn't a dog question; it was a stumping question for me. So, All right, any other questions? All right, so we can return back to Zephaniah three here. And so now he is saying, I've cut off nations. So the same language of Karath. So instead of cutting this covenant, he has cut them off. And there's other passages that we talk about where that same language is used of cutting them off if they break the covenant. But I've cut off nations, their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. Now you will accept correction. Again, remember earlier in verse 2, she accepts no correction. Now you will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. 
for my decision is to gather nations. He'll use the language of gathering a lot here in the rest of the book. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. So later on he'll be speaking of the gathering of God's chosen people, gathering together, them together for a great festival and wiping earth, make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. So later on, he'll be speaking of the gathering of God's people together on that last and final day. But here he's speaking of the wicked nations, gathering them all together, getting ready to send hellfire and brimstones on them. From the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. And we think of jealousy in a really negative sense, and we wouldn't dare ascribe it to God sometimes. But here, it's a good thing. For in, fire, in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He loves us. Isn't a little bit of jealousy in a marriage sometimes good? I mean, if you're not jealous at all of you know, your spouse flirting with someone, it can be seen as bad. Yes, you can take it too far and be overly jealous, but showing a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of jealousy on God's part of saying, hey, I love you. You're worshiping all these other pagan gods over here. Makes me upset. I love you. I have cut this covenant with you, and this is how you repay me. And so here he is showing his love for his people and his jealousy of doing away with all the wickedness of the world gathering together the wicked and doing away with them. So just as you're, you, I don't know, love your house or something and want to clear away all the junk to help purify your house, again, bad analogy maybe, but out of love for his people, he's gathering together all the wicked nations. Any thoughts, questions on that before we move in? And modern Christians don't necessarily like to talk about God as being jealous or God actually wanting to do away with wickedness. He doesn't desire that the wicked would die. We saw that in Ezekiel today. He desires that all would come to the knowledge of the truth. But the fact is, many won't. Many reject that. And so, doing away with the wickedness. All right, no questions. So we'll keep on trucking then. And we get a lot more positive, really sudden change here. Again, no headers or anything. So, moving right from fire of my jealousy to now. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. This is beautiful language carrying all the way throughout the rest of the book here. And all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. So he will change their speech to a pure speech, purifying their tongues. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6, with the seraphim and everything, he says, Behold, I'm a man of unclean lips. 
seraphim are singing three holies. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of power and might. Where we get that in our liturgy. We sing, Behold, I'm a man of unclean lips. And what does the seraphim do? Takes a coal and puts it on his lips. And he is purifying his lips by means of that. So here that same type of language, the same type of imagery. I will change the speech of the people's to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From, be, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. And so in the time frame here, Babylonian captivity hasn't happened yet. And so here, the daughter of my dispersed ones. I know things, are gonna, things aren't going to go great here in the future, but have faith. The daughter of my dispersed ones. You will be dispersed, but the rest of the book here is gathering back together, gathering my people back to myself. They shall bring my offering. So again, the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Pastor had mentioned that in his sermon previously of the bout, you know, making the tower and then being dispersed from there. So then this new gathering together. On that day you shall not be put to shame. Now a reversal of Genesis 2 of Adam and Eve saw their nakedness, they were ashamed. And so on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So here we get language similar to the Magnificat, you know, the humbling of the proud, that same reversal language going all the way throughout. And just great promises here for God's people. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So fleeing to him who is merciful, we can flee to him for refuge. For he is a mighty fortress, is our God here. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies. Nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. So those who are left in Israel, you know, doing no injustice and speaking no lies. Okay, is that anyone today? Is there anyone that speaks no lies or does no injustice? No. So there's a little bit of a now and not yet to this. Have we been purified by the blood of Christ? Yes. But is there still that old Adam rearing its head? Yes. So we have a now and not yet here. And we look forward to that final day when there will be no injustice or no speaking of no lies or anything of the such. When the Lord ultimately gathers together Israel, that is, his church, his believers, all together. And then they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. So we're turning to that imagery of the sheep of grazing, you can lie down because you're not afraid of wolves attacking because you have your shepherd right there guarding you. 
so you can both lie down and sleep. You get that imagery in Psalm 4, Psalm 23, and many others. All right, I'll pause there if there are any questions. So that on that day, is that mm-hmm. um, like Resurrection Day or... Like yes, to many. 11. Yeah. So that's a big thing with in the Minor Prophets is understanding exactly what day they're speaking of sometimes. And so there is some kind of confusion. This one's a lot more... Let me talk about verse 11. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there is, again, the gathering together of Israel once more after the captivity... In some respects, yes, but ultimately, you know, there's still going to be the exalt or the proudly exultant ones in their midst, or the haughty ones within their midst. So ultimately, he is going to be speaking of that full fulfillment on the last day, on the day when Christ comes again. Yeah, that is a tricky part with the minor prophets, as no one when they're talking about what exactly. But that's also kind of the beauty of it. Because then you can see all throughout, it's this is how God works. You know, it's not some brand new thing that he says, hmm, I think I'll do this for the last day. It's all throughout, the gathering together of God's people once more. It's been the plan, and he acts that way all throughout Scripture and all throughout history. Okay. Uh, I'm... I'm back a little bit in your time uh, mm-hmm. thinking about the jealous comment, jealousy, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, a little bit of jealousy is good. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, but God is jealous, and in our relationships where we love, a little bit of jealousy, you're saying, is good. And mm-hmm. um, it seems like that's a deep subject. A lot of thought can go into that because that, when you're jealous, it makes you vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And yet the love, you know, so... I never thought of it that way. Just wanted to mention that, and yeah. that God is jealous, and we are like Him, and so, you know, I just mm-hmm. just wanted to reflect on that. I, I think you could probably spend an hour studying. That. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. All throughout Scripture of God speaking of His and jealousy. And I'm thinking, I would say it with Gomer, you know, how God demonstrates that with a full mm-hmm. book, almost, you know, mm-hmm. uh, of He's jealous of Israel, you know. Of, so, anyway. Yeah. I mean, would you want your God to just not really care if you, you know, go worship some pagan gods down the road? Right. I mean, you want, you, it's a good thing to have a jealous God because he actually cares for you. Right. He loves you. He wants you to be in fellowship with him. Yet there's a vulnerability, um, mm-hmm. you know, that you... Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that could probably be fleshed out a lot more for, yeah, yeah. like you said, several classes probably even, I just, all the jealousy. I just wanted to comment on it. It's deep, no, yeah. I think. Yeah, it's a great thing to meditate on is the love of God and how that shows itself in various ways. Any other comments? All right, so we're into verse 14. So he gives four verbs for the people of Israel. Again, people of Israel thinking God's church, us today, we are of the people of Israel. 
Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. So you think this is good news coming? Sing, shouting, rejoicing, exulting. Seems pretty great that what he's going to be talking about. And what does he say? The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The Lord is the one taking away the judgments. He is the one clearing away your enemies. As he said, the Lord, with the help of, you know, my puny little nation Israel, has taken away the judgments. Or the Lord, with the help of puny little Vicar Grow, has cleared away your enemies. No, the Lord himself is the one doing these actions. And ultimately, what has he taken away the judgments? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one, he is the only one who take away these judgments, nailing them to the cross for us, clearing away your enemies, clearing away the threat of Satan, for he has no power over you. It's all the Lord's doing. Then continues on in verse 15, the king of Israel. If you had any doubt of who the king of Israel is here, he specifies even more, the Lord. So again, the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Is he only God with us starting in Matthew chapter 2 there? No. He's been with his people all along. He is God with us from the beginning to the end. He's always, I will be with you always even to the end of the age. Our Lord says in Matthew 28, The Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Just beautiful promises here, even in the Old Testament, even in a minor prophet. Again, we think of all these gospel messages being only in the New Testament. All these gospel promises, you know, Old Testament bad, New Testament good, Old Testament law, New Testament gospel. It completely obliterates that. The Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Even in Zephaniah, right before the Babylonian captivity, this promise to God's people carried all the way throughout. Just great, great promises here. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. It's not that you won't work that your hands won't grow weak in your work. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And then we get three he wills. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And we get the same type of imagery in the prodigal son, from the son returning. And then what does the father do? He's rejoicing at the returning of his son. So here, the Lord is rejoicing. He's quieting you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing, preparing this great feast. And that's what he says in verse 18. I will gather, in gathering together, those of you who mourn.
for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. So he who rejoices over you, he who quiets you by his love, that is, comforting you by his love, he who exalts over you with loud singing, he will gather all of you who mourn, all of you who mourn in this life for the suffering that you endure. He will gather you together for the festival so you will no longer suffer reproach. This great festival, this great feast that will not end. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. Again, the words here echoing in their ears as they're in the Babylonian captivity. The Lord will gather the outcast. We may be in exile, but the Lord will gather his people once more together. And gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Changing their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Again, the weak, the weak nation of Israel. In the world's eyes, us weak Christians who are just weak and foolish, that we don't know any better, that we just believe fairy tales or any of the such lies that they spew at us. On that last day, he will change our shame into praise and renown in all the earth. So all the faithful Christians who just live a quiet life, you know, they don't make the news, they don't change the world or anything, they faithfully live their life in Christ. Behind closed doors, they do great and many acts of mercy to those around them. Live a quiet, humble life. No one else knows what they're doing, hardly ever. You know, the quiet old church lady that just goes about her work faithfully. He will renown them. They will be renowned throughout all the earth. For all of us who aren't renowned in this age, on that last day, we will be renowned in all the earth. We will be exalted before the face of the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. That's the end of Zephaniah. But again, just some just marvelous, marvelous imagery, marvelous promises that our Lord gives through the mouth of Zephaniah here. Again, just in a little minor prophet that we all have probably skipped over or maybe skimmed through, not paid much attention to. And this is probably by far my favorite ending of the minor prophets that we've studied so far. Just this great, great imagery that he has given for us of what that final day will be like and all the different facets of it, of gathering us together, gathering us together for this feast. We shout and we rejoice. We sing for joy. Just, just wonderful here. Any thoughts, contemplations, reflections on Zephaniah? Got one up front here. I looked up Cush, K U S H. Did you? 
I didn't know anything about that. No, I had I didn't okay. dive into it. Rivers of Kush. It's in Africa, mm-hmm. and evidently it was a nation that succeeded Egypt, and was as wealthy as Egypt and powerful as Egypt in one at one mm-hmm. time. So I'm thinking, why are they saying the you know why the rivers of Kush beyond the rivers of Kush? Mm-hmm. Is it is it trying to say in their known world, they knew there were lands out there, but like God's word was spread across. Mm-hmm. Is that what it's trying to say? I, I think that's a sense of it is, I mean, nowadays, yeah, we've explored all the nations. They were not monotheistic, they were polytheistic mm-hmm. and all that, you know, like Egypt. Yeah, just kind of the far reaches of the earth in their mindset of, you know, for the readers here, if it's just, what do you mean beyond the rivers of Cush? All the way out there, he's going to gather them together, all the way, just unthinkable nowadays. I don't know a modern day connection because we've, I mean, we haven't deeply explored everything, but I mean, there's not really any place that is just completely unthinkable that he's gathering us together from that. From what? (laughs) There we, yeah. (laughs) If we start a civilization on the moon or something, yeah, from beyond the, the craters of the moon. I really like that verse 315. You know, <clears throat> that it enfolds or embellishes mm-hmm. a number of promises of God. It's very comforting. So like mm-hmm. you said, uh, I, I didn't know that was in Zephaniah. So mm-hmm. it's going to be one of my favorites from now on. Yeah, it's just a marvelous, marvelous thing. Again, just kind of tucked away in there. You just don't... Yeah. Yeah, you'd skim through it, or you know, maybe an electionary reading. Probably not. I don't know if Zephaniah or many of the minor prophets pop up too much. Yeah, there we go. Add Zephaniah up there somewhere. May not have room to spell out Zephaniah, but yeah. Any other thoughts, reflections on this? All right then. Without further ado, flip the page, and we're going to be moving on to Haggai. Now, whenever we first started, I was going to, saying we we're going to just do a short selection of the ones that we don't really pay too much attention to. But I feel like many of us don't pay attention to many of these. I mean, even in my own study, I'm like, if you ask me on the street before studying, what's Haggai about? I'd be kind of hard-pressed to tell you exactly. So, I mean, I know we're going through a lot more of them than probably originally intended, but I still hope it's fruitful as we've been going through them and you've been able to glean a lot from them. But we're moving on to Haggai. And so looking at the dates here, can we have 605 of Nebuchadnezzar besieging Jerusalem? And then in that time frame between 605, like 587, 586, the temple being destroyed And then they are in captivity. And then 538, Cyrus comes in and he conquers the Babylonians. I think I said 538. I may have said something else. But 538, Cyrus decrees that the exiles may return to Judah. And then we get into 520, Haggai is delivering his prophecies. So this is post-exilic. 
And so they've returned to Judah. And now pretty much the thrust of Haggai is get busy building the temple again. The temple's been destroyed. And we'll see this right off the bat of here, get, get busy, start building the temple of God again. He wants to dwell in your midst and we'll flesh that out a little bit as we go. But that's the time frame. So they've returned from exile and have yet to rebuild the temple. A few of Luther's comments, just that first paragraph. Haggai is the first prophet given to the people after the Babylonian captivity. And by his prophecy, the temple and the worship of God were set up again. In addition, Zechariah was later given to him as a companion for a period of two months so that by the mouth of two witnesses, the word of God might the more surely be believed. The people had fallen into great doubt whether the temple would ever be rebuilt. Then he continues on from there. Any questions on just kind of the introductory material before we get in? This book will feel super easy compared to our previous Previous Minor Prophets, pretty straightforward. He gives some great timelines so we know who he's talking about, who he's talking to. Not some obscure imagery that we kind of have to do some further studying on. It's fairly straightforward and hopefully very simple. Starting in 1 verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month of the first day of the month, So we'll get all these timelines of when Haggai starts to prophesy. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And so your study note makes mention of this, and you can even see it in Matthew's genealogy. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, in the line of Christ. And so he is mentioned in the genealogy there. If you want to look further, you can look in Matthew's genealogy and do some searching of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, as you go along. But he's in there, so in that line. And then you have Joshua, the high priest. So again, during this time, no temple yet. They're still having a high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people, shall, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So they're saying, the people are saying that it hasn't, the time hasn't come to rebuild the temple. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So basically... Is it time for you guys to live comfortably in your nice houses while the Lord doesn't have a house to dwell in? You have some pretty house, nice houses right now. It'd be nice if the Lord had a house. Here, you want to get busy building that house for the Lord? It's kind of the, the thrust behind that there. Let's see, verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. 
You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Again, I think we see some of that today. Never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You earn wages. Put them into bags with holes. It's called taxes. Just falls out the bottom. So in trying to live out, live for themselves, to provide for themselves, to build up their own wealth, they still don't have enough. All their wages seep through the cracks there. And we'll see the language of consider your ways kind of all throughout, even though it's only two chapters. We'll see it pop up a few times of kind of, hey, maybe think, think a little more carefully. You want to think again about that? How is that going for you? Kind of how, I'm trying to think of a good way that a mother may say that to their kids of, do you want to ask that another time, maybe in a different way? So maybe stop and kind of pause and think about it a little bit. So the Lord is saying here, you know, hey, consider your ways. How's this going for you? You know, you're building up, you're trying to build up your houses, trying to have new paneled houses, but you're sowing much and harvesting little. So maybe you want to try a different Different tack here. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. Now I've called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on, and on all their labors. So basically you can work as hard as you want, but you know, ultimately all that you have is from the Lord. And so it's his to give, his to withhold. So you want to consider your ways again? Maybe, maybe build that temple like I command you? Again, fairly straightforward. Any questions on the first 11 verses? And the language seems a little harsh of, you know, the Lord, them building up the houses and the Lord blowing them away. But again, ultimately, it's the Lord's to give, the Lord's to withhold. He's not doing as he commands. So, or they are not doing as he commands. So he can withhold. Again, consider your ways. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people. See the language of the remnant here. Obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of, all, of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord 
of hosts their God. On the 24th day of the month and the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So again, looking at the time frame, so we're still in the sixth month from whenever he first gives the decree or the, the prophecy to Zerubbabel and Joshua. So he started out the first day of the month and now on the 24th day of the month. So within a month's time, they kind of got their act together and, hey, maybe we should, maybe we should start building that temple. So again, this is just a fairly straightforward book here. They weren't doing what God commanded. He sent a prophet. The prophet spoke the word of God. That word was efficacious. Their spirits were stirred, and they listened to the word of God. They turned back from their ways and started doing what God had commanded. Maybe it will go better for them now. Are you any questions on that before we get into it? We've only got a couple minutes. We'll probably get through a few more verses. Yeah. I don't know if this is correct, but I like thinking of this as um, like the theme of restoration. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like maybe in Luther's time, the Reformation, and maybe in our own time to to restore mm-hmm. the church and God's word and our culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, each and every week we come with our own ways of doing things, our own ways of trying to provide for ourselves while neglecting the word of God. And so then on Sunday morning is pretty much the pastor saying, consider your ways. How's that been working out for you? How's that life of sin been working out for you? And the spirit works through that, stirs your hearts, turn from your way in repentance, and then you live. So it's a simple pattern of restoration here, but we see that play out here. We see it play it all throughout scriptures and all throughout our lives. Is there another? All right. Uh, I may go ahead and just stop there for today, even though we've got a couple minutes. We don't have quite enough time to finish up Haggai, even though it's only two chapters. But this is a good chapter break, and we'll revisit it next week and finish it up. Again, fairly straightforward, and then we'll move on to Zechariah from there. The Lord be with you.